If you could open your Bibles to the book of Jude, second to last book in the New Testament. And first of all, I just want to say good afternoon. Uh, It's good to see you guys. Um, I was just talking to someone earlier this week, and we were kind of looking ahead and also kind of looking back. And it's funny that uh, we're talking about summer and how hot it is and how the weather's changed, because I think the real ones here know, you remember where we used to meet? We used to meet right next door, and this is not a criticizing them or anything, but there was one summer where we were meeting and the AC didn't work, right? So literally, it was like a sermon illustration on judgment. I remember people were like standing up. We had like a bucket of water, and people were like sticking their hands in the water. It was terrible. I, I forgot what I preached on. Uh, but we were looking back at that and looking ahead and, 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 and thinking about like maybe buying a building or trying to do something like that. Um, and kind of the topic came up of, uh, just how Zoe is kind of a, it's kind of a difficult church. It's kind of an inconvenient church, right? We don't really make it super easy or, uh, comfortable, I guess. It's more comfortable than a few years ago. We have AC now. Praise God. Um, but we don't have the programs and ministries that some churches have where there's literally something for everybody, right? Like every life stage, like you're like a single, like hundred plus fisherman or something like that. And we have a ministry for you. We don't have that. Uh, we also, I know we're kind of far for some of you. I know some people drive from really far out, 30 minutes, 40 minutes away. It's a big commute. Okay. I know it's not easy. Um, and then on top of that, we meet at 1.30 which I know for a lot of people is a deal breaker. So I was thinking about all this, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe we survived as a church. Um, but there is a silver lining. I think when we were talking about it, it made me think, at the very least, and not to puff you guys up, but I think it kind of weeded out people who weren't about kind of the main thing that we're about, okay? which is simply the Bible. And part of that is because we had nothing else. <laughs> we're not like the flashiest. We're not the most talented or anything like that. Um, but we're a church where we just try to simply be about God's word. And we kind of put a lot of stumbling blocks in your way. But if you want to be about God's word, then you stay, even if other things are hard, even if there's no one your age or if you have to drive super far or if 1.30 is like the worst time for you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying other churches aren't about the Bible. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that if you leave, I know there's some visitors here. Welcome. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. Like if you never come back, it's because you're not about the Bible. I'm not saying that either. But what I am saying is the Bible is basically all we have at the end of the day. There's no other reason to stay And it's really been a blessing, kind of inadvertently. I know we wanted to meet in the morning. We still do. Uh, We wanted to have our own building. We still are going to try to do that. But it's been a blessing over the years to preach to a congregation where I know pretty much all of you, the only reason you're here is for the Bible. It's not for me. Maybe it's for James a little bit, but he's not even here. He's on sabbatical. It's for the Bible. That's why we always, this is what I tell myself to make myself sleep at night. This is why we preach for an hour because I want to give you what you want. Okay, I know that's what you're here for. Okay, okay, anyway, the Bible. We're in the book of Jude. Hopefully you already turned there. Uh, it's only one chapter. It's a short book, but it's very dense. Uh, we said it's the most neglected book. That's what people have called it, the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's one of the harder books to teach, honestly. Uh, so hopefully it's been an, uh, uh, a valuable, enriching study for you guys. It's almost over. We're in verses 17 through 19. Uh, it's only one chapter, so we're almost at the end. 
I'm going to read the text, but first I'm going to start from verse 1, read to verse 4, just to give us kind of a sense of the context. Then I'll go to our passage, I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Let's start with Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now go down to verse 17. The beginning of a new section. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon and we're here for you. And maybe our hearts have been distracted. Maybe our minds have been cluttered with other things. But God, I pray that right now as we come before you, as we sit before your holy word, that we would remember that this time is for you, that our lives are for you, that everything really should be for you. And God, I pray that you would speak through your word, that you would convict us, also encourage us, that you would build us up even as you correct us and help us to live differently. God, I pray that you would bring salvation to people who might need it in this room. God, I pray that you would bring sanctification and holiness. Most of all, God, I pray that you would reveal your son to us. And I pray that we would understand Jesus better, that we would know him better, that we would live for him more. God, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where what you were doing was more difficult than what you expected at the outset? Okay. Have you ever found yourself feeling like this is harder than I thought it was going to be? Right? Maybe it was a project around your house. Right? You thought this is going to take me like an hour. I'll just get everything out and everything's still out two weeks later. You're not sure if you're going to finish or you're going to go to heaven first before you finish. Maybe your brother-in-law wanted to take your family on an easy hike. Right? He said, you know, it'll be fine. I know you have a baby, but it'll be cool. And now you still don't trust him. Right? Some of your family members are still there on that hike. You'll never see him again. This may or may not be autobiographical. Maybe it was a relationship. A few years ago, someone asked a famous evangelical leader for advice. And I'm going to read to you the full quote. This is what the person asked the leader. He said, I have a friend whose wife suffers from Alzheimer's. She doesn't even recognize him anymore. And as you can imagine, the marriage has been tough. My friend has gotten bitter at God for allowing his wife to be in that condition And now he started seeing another woman. He says that he should be allowed to see other people because his wife, as he knows her, is gone. I'm not quite sure what to tell him. Please help. End quote. Now, what do you think 
this Christian leader said? What kind of advice do you think this pastor gave this person who needed help? You know, I've officiated a good handful of weddings in my life, and I've been to even more. And here's one thing that all of these weddings have in common. They're all different, but they all have this one thing in common. There's a time in the ceremony where the bride and the groom make some sort of promise to each other. It might be traditional vows. Maybe they wrote their own something or other, but it's always along the lines of something like for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, I will, I do, I promise. That's kind of how it goes. You know how it is. Every single bride and every single groom said something along those lines. And I don't think any single person that I've seen personally was maliciously lying. They weren't trying to manipulate. They weren't uh, crossing their fingers behind their back when they said it. But the truth is, there's never an easier time to say those words, to promise those specific promises, to make those vows than on your wedding day. And unfortunately, I have been to weddings where I heard I was one of the witnesses alongside of God. And yet that wedding, now, in the rearview mirror, didn't mean a whole lot because that marriage is over. On your wedding day, you make those promises, you say those vows, and yet you have no concept yet of what it might be like to have to live them. I mean, day to day, it's just hard. I think all my married people here know that it's hard, even in the best of circumstances. But for some of us, and maybe you do know what this is like, but for most of us, we don't know what it's like to have to watch our spouse grow old and and see that person that you promised yourself to lose their memories and even their mind before your very eyes. And sickness was theoretical, and you had the best of intentions when you made those promises. And yet when that sickness descends upon you and your marriage and your family, it's very difficult. What happens when it becomes real, painfully, heartbreakingly real? That's the issue. That's at the heart of that question. The wedding day promise versus the day-to-day Day in, day out, pain. What do you think that evangelical leader said? Well, first he acknowledged that it was a tough situation, which it is. It, it, it was a wise thing to say. And then he prefaced his counsel with a disclaimer. And this is where things got a little interesting, where people started to shake their heads and, and you could see the surprise He said, what I'm about to say is going to sound cruel. What was he about to say? What kind of thing is, how are you going to follow that? Then he said, he should divorce her and start all over again. I think he should divorce her. It's okay. I mean, think about how difficult it must be for him. Just start over. Now, you might have a question for me. At this point, what does this have to do with our passage in Jude? You just read the text. It's not a marriage text. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a bad experience in church? Anyone? Not this church, right? Obviously, every week is kind of a mid experience. So just kidding. Have you ever had a bad experience in church? We can only laugh because the truth is a lot of us have. I know it because I've talked to you. Many of us have had bad experiences in multiple churches. Some of us have had horrific, terrible experiences in church. 
And even if you haven't, even if you're brand new or you've had good churches by God's grace, you know people who have had bad experiences and you know how terrible they can be how they can scar and wound and disillusion. Maybe your friends who had bad experiences, they've given up on church and even Jesus altogether. Now, you ask Jesse, what are we even talking about here? What do we do when things are a lot harder than what we expected? Whether hikes, marriages, or church, The issue at the heart of these situations is what we're talking about. What does it mean when something is a lot harder or when something is a lot worse than what we thought we signed up for? What's the next step? We might ask for help. We might ask for advice. But what do we do? Do we press on even if it's killing us? Even if it's the worst thing we ever experienced, do we just keep going? Do we tap out? Do we give up? Is that even wrong? What do we do? Now, we're getting toward the end of Jude. And Jude has spent the bulk of his letter addressing false teachers and false teaching. But if you've been here, you've noticed that Jude has never actually used those words. Okay, He's never said, watch out for false teachers, watch out for false teaching. This is what they were specifically doing, don't get me wrong. But the problem, understand, is more general than that. You might think, okay, well, Jude is fine. I'll I'll save it in my back pocket in case someone, some pastor gets up here and says some heresy, then I'll remember Jude and I'll apply the lessons. It's more general than that. It's more applicable than that. It's not just that there were false teachers from the pulpit or something so granular. It's that there were people in the church who were causing problems. They were giving bad advice. They were creating divisions. They were living ungodly lives and being ungodly examples. And yet they were blending right in, so Jude felt like he had to address it. If you look at verse 3, he says, they crept in unnoticed, so we must contend for the faith. you got to wake up and start fighting for the church or else you're going to lose it. And the effect was, if you take a step back, the whole church was being dragged down. You don't know who was good, who was bad. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of problems. There are people kind of pulling the strings. But if you just look at everyone, it seems like everyone's fine. So where are the problems? What's going on? Is this what church is like? So Jude feels like he has to address the problem. There there are these people who have been doing bad things in the church. He has to address the issue. And, you know, he's been doing that for pretty much the whole book. They do this. They do that. I, I don't know if you felt this. Me and Eric had talked about this like every week. Uh, Jude is kind of a downer. This is not like the most encouraging or happy book. Every week it's talking about judgment and sin and problems in the church. But here in our passage, he starts to switch gears and maybe we'll see, uh, at least start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. See, after all of this, After all these descriptions of how bad things could be in the church, how people can creep in and mess things up, how they already are messing things up, how we see that in our own day and age, after all of that, we might be tempted to just have a lower view of church. I guess church is just terrible. We might be discouraged. We might be disillusioned. We might be discontent with how much worse the church seems to be than what we read about in like the book of Acts. Maybe we've been reminded of our own bad experiences and we start to doubt if we even want to kind of jump back into church. 
if we want to get involved? Do I want to be in community with sinners? Do I want to open myself up? Do I want to share what I'm really thinking and going through? We might even be tempted to check out a church altogether. Maybe I'll show up sometimes on Sunday. I'll listen, but I'll slip out. I don't need to know these people as long as I have my relationship with Jesus because I know how messy and how terrible it can be. Jude has a word for us. Jude knows that church is messy, but not more messy than he expected or Jesus. And with the inspired authority of God, he wants to change our assumptions, the assumptions that we bring to church. And he wants to give us a new approach to how we deal with even the messiest and worst of churches. So let's get into it. Three verses and three points. Jude is addressing his readers directly now, and he has some instructions for them. Okay, so for a while he's been saying, they do this, they do that. Here he's going to say, but you. Three instructions. And the first thing is he wants them to remember. Remember. And this first point is about having the right authority, which is the word of God. Okay, having the right authority. Look at verse 17. But you must remember. You could stop there. Verse 17 begins with the word, but. Okay, which indicates contrast. Now, when you study the Bible, oftentimes it's the little words that change the meaning most significantly or determine the meaning. It's words like and or but or through or therefore. Jude is creating a contrast here. See, before, for the past, I don't know how many verses, has spent verse after verse talking about these people who have been ruining the church. They do these things. They're going to judgment. But now in verse 17, he says, but you, but you, different audience. Now, I want to make sure that we have the right kind of picture in our minds here. Okay, of how this would even be received. Now, we don't know a lot about who Jude was writing to specifically. He doesn't say, I'm writing to the church in Ephesus or Galatia or anything like that. But if you look at the contextual and content clues, he name drops his brother James, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He talks a lot about kind of ancient Jewish writings and stuff. So he's most likely writing to the churches that were in and around Jerusalem and kind of the Israel area. It might be more than one church, but it's a group of Christians. Now, the early Christians, when they started meeting, okay, they had relationships outside of the church service, but they would have a meeting every single week on the Lord's Day, that Sunday. And they modeled it after the synagogue system. So in the Jewish kind of religion and during that time period, they would meet not just at the temple for sacrifice, but they would meet in synagogues. They would gather in these smaller groups and they would kind of sit around in chairs or uh, uh, however they would set it up around a person who would read from the Bible, from the scriptures, the Old Testament, and would explain it. They might pray. They might sing a little bit. So functionally, it's not that different what we're trying to do now versus what they were doing then. And the Christians, they copied it. They would open up the scriptures, they would teach, they would sing, they would take the sacraments, stuff like that. Now, in those days, if an apostle wrote a letter, what they would do is they would gather, and then the apostle, or they would get the letter from the apostle, and they would read it to the whole church. So just picture this, okay? So you're meeting in your church. Things might be going well, maybe not. You're not totally sure. Maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you've been around for a little while, but you're just gathering with the church. And they say, there's a letter from Jude, the brother of James, who's the brother of Jesus. And he has a word for us. They open up the letter. They read it out loud. And he says, you know, I wanted to write to you an encouraging thing, but 
because things are going really bad and people are like, what, it's going really bad? I want you to contend for the faith. There are all these people who are messing things up. They are among you, but you. Now, imagine you're there and you're hearing this. You might not know exactly who he's talking about. He doesn't name drop. He doesn't call out any specific false teachings. Sometimes Paul would do things like that. Like, it's Alexander. It's him, right? Everyone's like looking at him and pointing. But here, right, he just says, there are some people who are messing things up, but I want you to focus on this. What's the difference between you, the real Christians, and them, the false teachers? It wasn't immediately apparent. Picture the church service. I mean, we're all just sitting here. Now it's super awkward because someone or someone or many people around us are false teachers. Am I a false teacher? I don't even know. How do you know? And this is the genius of how Jude chooses to address this. His words hit everyone. Everyone needs to think, not just, am I a false teacher or not? But they need to think about what he's saying specifically. Am I a person who just does whatever I want? Am I a person who scoffs? Am I a person who creates division? Everyone needs to be more discerning about everyone else around them, yes, but also everyone needs to ask the question in their own hearts, is it I? Is it me? There is a strong contrast, but Jude doesn't make it explicit who in particular he's talking to. Rather, it's self-revealing. And what does that mean? Well, let me illustrate it for you like this. Jesus would often teach to crowds. And he knew that many people in the crowds were not going to follow him long term. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Right? He preached to thousands of people. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And yet, when he went to Jerusalem, and they, they put him up before everyone, Pontius Pilate put him up, so many people were just shouting, crucify him, crucify him. People were so fickle. People changed their minds. You could argue they were different people, but you understand the point. The crowds were a mixed bag some true disciples, and a lot of people who weren't. And he would tell these parables, stories that were on the surface very simple, but were actually incredibly profound. They were spiritual stories, you could say, stories that had a deeper meaning about God and what it meant to live for him. He would tell the story about like a farmer or a wedding or, or a guy who had two sons, and they would be the most profound stories you ever heard, or they would just be a simple story where you don't understand it at all. He would tell the same story to the whole crowd, and then he would say these words at the end. Do you know what I'm talking about? He would say, not the explanation usually, but he would say, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear, or let her hear. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus spoke to huge crowds. They all came to hear him, but he knew there were only a few who were really listening, only a few who were really grasping what he said. And Jude is doing a similar thing. Jude makes a contrast, but he doesn't externally separate the sheep and the goats, so to speak, or the sheep and the wolves. He doesn't specify who is who. He just says, you, but you. And if you have ears to hear, then you will hear. He says, but you must remember. And this is how we know, because the word in the original Greek there is mimneskamai. Okay, mimneskamai, you don't have to know that. But understand that mimneskamai is not just a cognitive word. Okay, like remember as in like, okay, what was that person's name again? I can't, oh yeah, that's right. It's not just a mental thing like that. That's part of it. But mimneskamai is a word that has to do with not just the mind, but the will. 
That's why Jude can command it here. It's an imperative. Okay, It's hard to command someone to remember something they mentally forgot. But you can command someone to call to mind something that they know they just haven't been thinking about. They haven't been taking to heart. It's about active recall. It's about really internalizing what has been said in the past. One commentator put it like this. He said, remembering means that one takes to heart the word spoken so that they are imprinted upon one's life. So understand what Jude is doing here. Strong contrast. Them, the false teachers, you, the real Christians. But what's the contrast? It's self-revealing. It's those who are willing to actually remember. Those who are willing to take it to heart. He's telling everyone to take it to heart, but he knows that only the real Christians will do it. Because look at what he says right after. He says in verse 17, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does apostle mean? It means sent one. Those who are sent by Christ. Their authority is from Jesus. They said to you, verse 18, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3. It's only a little bit back, just a few pages. Second Peter 3. Now, I say this about every book, and sometimes I explain why I say it, but Second Peter is pretty crazy. Maybe the craziest book in the Bible. Um, now, if you've ever done a study of Second Peter, okay, one of the interesting things is when you like buy a commentary on Second Peter, usually it's not with what you'd expect, which would be First Peter. It's not a first and second Peter commentary. Usually it's a second Peter and Jude commentary. I don't know if you ever noticed that. You might not have ever looked that up. But when I was studying this, so many commentaries that I bought were Jude and second Peter together. And the reason why isn't because they have the same author, but because they're kind of writing about similar things. In fact, they use a lot of the same illustrations, even a lot of the same words. And people kind of argue, which one came first? Did they kind of know about each other? Did they read each other's book? Are they quoting each other? We're not totally sure which one came first. There's no date on these books. They're pretty similar in time period. But if I had to say, I'd argue that I think Jude came after Second Peter. And it's because Jude says, remember what the apostles said? Well, what did the apostle Peter say in Second Peter 3? Look at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. It's different wording, but it's the same message. Scoffers will come with scoffing. They will follow their own sinful desires or ungodly passions. Peter the Apostle basically said what Jude quotes. And yet notice, this isn't unique to him either. He says to his his readers, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he said, other apostles said this, Jesus said it through the other apostles, and it's older than us. It goes back to the prophets. Now, in the Bible, when they refer to the entirety of the scriptures in the early church, when they talked about the entirety of the Bible, what would they call it? The word of the prophets and the apostles. Because what were the prophets? What were the apostles? They weren't people who wrote on their own authority. They were people who were sent by God to give an authoritative message from him. 
The prophets and the apostles were people who, humanly speaking, wrote God's word on behalf of God. The Holy Spirit inspired them. He spoke through them. Now, back to Jude. Back to Jude. What characterizes the quote-unquote false teachers Jude warns of? What sets apart these people that Jude is warning about and calling out who are messing up the church from within? What makes them bad, in other words? Verse 8, they reject authority. Verse 10, they rely on their own instincts. Verse 12, they feast without fear. Fear of who? Fear of God. Verse 16, they follow their own sinful desires. They follow no one but themselves. If you notice a pattern, what sets them apart is they do whatever they want to do. They are their own boss. They are their own authority. They aren't in any way characterized by being people who take to heart what God says. Now, I know that this is a lot of work for just a few verses, a few words even, but understand the contrast. Jude is writing a letter and he says, but you must remember, you must take to heart what the apostles said. And he knows that to some people, this means everything. And to some people, this means nothing. And he'll let the Holy Spirit sort that out internally. This is the dividing line. So let me ask you now. Let me ask you. And I preach to myself. I ask myself, do we take to heart what the scriptures say. Not just do we read it, not just are we familiar with what it says, not even do we memorize it or study it. Do we take it to heart? Is there a real internalizing of the truth of what it says? Please understand, it's not just about theological education. It's not just about biblical comprehension. It's about how much of a hold on the heart these words have, where they do convict us where they do speak a life to us, where they do encourage us, where they do totally change the direction we were walking in because God said it. When you're making a big decision, does the word of God direct that decision? When you're out and about in your daily life, does the word of God direct you? In the heat of the moment, does the word of God direct you? This is what I mean when I says it's self-revealing. Eventually, your choices and your actions will answer these questions for you, if not to everyone else, at least to God. You know, Jesus told a parable, talking about parables, about two sons. Maybe not the one you're thinking of, not Luke 15, but Matthew 21. Don't turn there. Okay, just listen. And if you have ears to hear, you can hear. Matthew 21, verse 28. Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And what Jesus is getting at is it's not what you say, it's what you actually believe and it's what you actually do. What you do will reveal which side you're on, who you are, what kind of person. 
And this leads to the second point. I don't want to belabor this anymore. Jude isn't telling them to remember just to make a a strong contrast. That's not even the main reason he brings it up. But this is how he changes how the letter is going. He's talking about the people. He's talking to the people who will receive this. He's telling them, remember, because he wants to help them and help us recalibrate our assumptions. Second point, and that's what the word is, recalibrate. You remember and then you recalibrate. And this is about having the right assumptions, okay? This was never going to be easy, in other words. Verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, Okay, remember, Jude isn't writing to them anymore or about them. He's not talking about how these people act. He's talking to you, to us, people who are called, who are beloved in God the Father, verse 1, kept for Jesus Christ, real Christians. He's writing to people who are suffering because of the blasphemers in the church and the hidden reefs that cause shipwrecks. He's writing to those who are stressed and concerned and discouraged because of what they they see in the church. He's writing to, to those who might not be aware of the disaster awaiting in the church if they don't wake up to the reality that there might be some people sitting among us who are fake and who aren't to be trusted and who will take advantage of us if they can. He says, take to heart what the apostle said, which was in the last time there will be, not there might be, but there will be scoffers who do whatever they want whatever ungodly thing in the church. Now, notice he says, in the last time. We might misunderstand that. And I think part of the reason we misunderstand that is just because of how we popularly think of the end times now. Now, I grew up in a time when I was a kid where let behind was like the big thing. You guys know what that is, even? Let behind. Highly recommend it for your quiet times. No, I'm just kidding. You could read it if you want. You could read it if you want. Um, but Let Behind was this popular, like, series of books. I remember it was flying off the shelves, even at, like, Sam's Club. I was like, who's buying this? And then I looked at my hand and it was me, right? But anyway, Let Behind was a series of books that talked about kind of, it was a fictional kind of accounting of the book of Revelation and, uh, it's through a certain theological perspective. We can talk about it later. But basically, the plot is the rapture happens, and then all the Christians disappear, right? Like, planes are falling out of the sky because the Christian pilots just got sent to heaven. And and then there's a great tribulation, and there's this UN leader who is the Antichrist, and then they battle him and stuff. I, I, I lost interest. I didn't read the end, so I'm not sure what happened, but I'm pretty sure, hopefully, Jesus won. But these novels were super popular, and they kind of infected... uh Christian consciousness with certain ideas, some of which are good and some of which are fictional, okay? We have this picture of like what the end times will be. People will just disappear and stuff like that. The thing is, when we think about the end times, we think about these things. But that's not really what the Bible, okay, means when it says in the last time or in the last age or in the latter days. See, in the scripture, when it talks about the end, it's talking about something much more broad, then maybe what we're thinking. Okay, we're not like supposed to look around at the world and be like, well, things are getting really bad, so it must be the end times. That's not exactly the way we should be thinking. Rather, the scripture says that since Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven, it's been the last time. It's been the end of the age. Okay, this is the last stage of history, scripturally speaking. Jesus has already come to pay for our sins. He is already alive. So understand when Jude says in the last time, he's not trying to talk about some like, you know, like newspaper clippings on the wall kind of stuff. He's making a bigger point. 
he's saying that the church was always going to have scoffers. It was always going to be hard because it's always been the last time. And I bring this up because I remember there was a time where pastors were talking about the golden age of the church so much for a while. Sometimes they still do. I hear it every once in a while where they say, why can't we just go back to the book of Acts? Acts chapter two, baby, right? That's what they say. They don't say baby. They say something like brother, but that's what they, that's what they mean. They look at it and it's like a idyllic age where everyone was just following the apostles and everyone was sharing and breaking bread and going from house to house. And why can't we just go back to that? I think the Reformation messed it up or it was the Catholic church that messed it up or it was the Baptists or it was the Presbyterians. It's us. It's America. No, it was always, always filled with scoffers who followed their ungodly passions. In the last time, that's what Jesus said. That's what the prophets said. That's what the apostles said. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, let me read to you what the apostle Paul said. He said, but understand this, that in the last days, which were his days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. And this isn't just the people in the world in general. Notice at the end, he says they have the appearance of godliness. Eric was talking about this last week, ungodliness versus godliness. The crazy thing is there will be people who will claim to be godly, claim to be Christian. They will even seem godly on the surface before they reveal themselves, but it'll be fool's gold or worse. It'll be wolves underneath that cheap clothing. The constant refrain in the New Testament isn't make sure you preserve the pure church that has no problems. The constant refrain is, understand, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Now, look at the text more closely. It says, they will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. The word for scoffer is super unique in the New Testament. In Greek, it only shows up here and in Second Peter. Okay. Now the scoffer is the kind of person who mocks God and mocks religion. But understand, not from an atheistic viewpoint. It's not the person who says, oh, you believe in God. That's so dumb. It's the person who technically believes in God, but who makes a mockery of God in the way that they live their lives. It's a person who actually mocks God, who says, oh, I'm doing this for God. I'm a Christian, but lives totally hypocritically, who goes against what God cares about. And these people follow their own ungodly passions, people who do whatever they want to do. And this is really the crux of it. And I know some of you guys have tried to minister to people. You've tried to disciple younger believers. You've tried to reach out to friends that you knew were going down a bad path. Right? This is one of the most discouraging things in church for a lot of people. I know you shared with me, and I know it as a pastor too. This is one of the most discouraging things. Someone is going a wrong way, and maybe they come to you for advice. They say, pastor or you, brother, sister, help me out. Give me some counsel. What should I do? I want to do this but I'm not sure if it's right. Tell me what you think I should do. I want to get in a relationship with this person. I want to ask so-and-so to marry me. And you're like, okay, I don't know if this is a good idea. So you kind of walk it through with them. You give them some advice. You give them counsel from the scripture. You you tell them what they need to think about, how, to, how they need to discern this process. You give them Bible verses. You give them things to meditate on. 
and they agree with you when you meet with them. And then afterwards, they go and just do whatever they wanted to do in the first place. Right? How often does that happen? If you had a quarter for every time that happened and you donated it to our building fund, we would have a 20,000-person church and 100 people, right? That's what it would be like. We'd be so rich. Just kidding. A mark of the scoffer, okay, understand, is that at the end of the day, he always does whatever he feels like doing, even if it's ungodly. Whatever desire you have, that's the master. God doesn't factor in, at least not truly. Jude says these people are always going to be there. These people were always going to be there, expected to be like this. Now, I know this is not the most encouraging, the most encouraging point, but it needs to be said because I think so many of us, when we talk about our woes with church, our discouragements, our bad experiences, what we reveal to ourselves is that we did expect it to be different. We did expect it to be, we might have had good reasons to, but we expected church to be different. We know people can be selfish and cruel and indifferent out there in the world. But then, you know, we became Christians and we read the book of Acts. We heard a pastor talk about how great the book of Acts was. And it is great, but you got to read the whole thing. We become Christians. We think here it's going to be different for sure. Here I can be accepted and loved, forgiven when I mess up, encouraged when I need it, built up by others. Even when I'm corrected, I'll be corrected gently with uh, someone who has a concern for me from the heart. And then we actually go to church. We become part of church. And it's, let me just say, it's not exactly that. Even in the best churches, to put it mildly. And some of you guys, I mean, you, you know that experience where you kind of realize, okay, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Maybe it's when someone in church gossiped about you. You you shared something personal because you thought that there was trust and you were going to receive some good counsel or prayer, and they just shared it with everybody. Maybe someone gave you a disapproving stare when your baby started crying in church. This has happened to many people, and it just feels so judgmental and messed up. Maybe someone told you to move when you sat in front of them because you were blocking their view from the screen. This might be autobiographical, Maybe a leader turned out to be a hypocrite. Maybe someone, you shared something deep with them and they used that against you. Maybe we tried to help someone and all they did was take advantage of us and our Christian goodwill. This is real life. And Jude says in the last time, that's how it's going to be. So for people who take the word to heart, if you have ears to hear, hear this, take this to heart. Church was never promised to be easy or pleasant or even a good experience. God bless you guys. <laughs> Could we please come back next week? For real though, we need to recalibrate our expectations of what church is like with what the word of God says. There will be people who will be scoffers. They will follow their own ungodly passions. There will be people who cause division there will be people who are hidden reefs at our love feast, waterless clouds. There's going to be false teaching. Just because these things are there doesn't mean that things have gone horribly wrong or the church has failed or God is surprised. 
The truth is, the apostles knew exactly what they were talking about. The church is going to have fake people and real problems. Expect it. Now, one more point. I know that that is kind of a downer, but it's real life. But there's something on top of that. Third point. Be prepared. Don't be naive. Have realistic expectations. And third, recognize. Recognize. And this is about having the right approach, which is love. We need to recognize how we and how God fit into this whole picture. Verse 19. Jesus said, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Jude points out that the problems we face in church, they're caused by scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people. An interesting thing there, the word for worldly people is just one word in the Greek. It's where we get the word psychology from. It it literally means something like soulish people. Um, But what he's talking about is people who are just human, right? People who are just merely human. They don't have the spirit of God, right? They're natural people. They're worldly people in that sense. And it's here he draws another contrast, another line. This is what church is like because of these people, but this isn't what the church is supposed to be. It's these people who mess it up. They're natural people. But what about the people who aren't natural, so to speak? What about the people who aren't devoid of the Spirit, who have the Spirit of the living God living in us? And the church has that. What about these people? We are actually supposed to be different. So what do we do? Well, we contend for the faith, first of all. We fight for what's true and what's right. Jude will talk about this more in the next few verses. Stay tuned for next week. But we also have things like church discipline to hold people accountable and to protect the church from bad actors. But that's not all we have here. Because I've been thinking about these terms that Jude uses. And it's very similar to terms that Paul uses, actually, in 1 Corinthians. And I want to show you this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're just going to hop around a little bit, and then we'll close, okay? 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says it is these who cause these problems, and that is part of it. Part of the reason why church is difficult is because within the church, not everyone actually is Christian, to put it simply. That's what he's saying. You have to have some discernment and some expectations, but the issue goes a little deeper than that. First Corinthians. Now, the Corinthian church, out of all the churches, probably had the most problems. In fact, I think 1 Corinthians is one of the most important letters to read for the church in this day. It's just a very difficult book. That's the problem. But they had all these problems. They had divisions. They had worldliness. And then look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Writing to the Christians in the church, the real Christians, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a here in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human 
Stop there. Paul is saying to this church, to his brothers, to real Christians, he's saying, even though you're real Christians, even though you have the Holy Spirit, you're not living like it. You're acting in a merely human way, a natural way, a worldly way. And it was manifesting in what? In strife, in jealousy, in division, in all sorts of sins, the very same thing that the false teachers in Jude were doing. These real Corinthian Christians were doing what the fake Christians were doing. So yes, there are false teachers. They do cause divisions, and it's because they're devoid of the Spirit. But the New Testament is very clear. The word of the apostles is clear. Real Christians struggle too. The truth is church is doubly hard. It's hard because there are false teachers in the church. There are wolves. But also it's hard because the sheep, the real sheep, they struggle with sin. We struggle with sin. So what do we do? Turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is also Paul. Skip ahead a little bit after 1 Corinthians. Ephesians chapter 5. Why did I start by talking about marriage? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Paul writes to the husbands in the church, but hear the theological point. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Famous marriage passage, husbands love your wives, but notice who husbands are supposed to model their love after. Christ, who loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus loves the church as his own bride, and he sacrificed himself so that she, so that us, in the metaphor, might be sanctified and washed, set apart, not because we already were. And this goes back to our scripture reading. Do you remember it? Jeff read it. Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You've got to understand how crazy it is. Most people wouldn't die even for a good person. It's too much to ask. But what does the scripture say? But God, contrast, notice that word, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were devoid of the Spirit, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, while we were scoffers, every single one of us, Christ died for us. Notice that word, but there's a way that we act naturally. It's not natural to want to take care of your wife who is a completely different person. It's not natural to want to stay in a church where the people are sinful and they sin against you. It's not natural to want to deal with people who make life difficult for you, but God is different than we are. And the reason, the thing that makes him different, okay, understand, it's not because we deserved it, not because it was easy, not because it was pleasant for him. The reason is because love. It's like so simple and so basic, and yet it's the most important thing because of his great love for us, and that's it. 
Because there's a word we skipped over in Jude. I didn't talk about it at all. Verse 17, a favorite word of Jude. Everyone's sitting in the service waiting to hear what Jude has to say. And it's a harsh letter with a lot of harsh truths. And yet time and again, Jude keeps saying this word. He calls them by this term, verse 17, but you must remember, beloved. Even though he knows how bad things are going in the church and how bad things would be, he calls them beloved. He loves them. And it goes back to verse 1 in Jude. He writes, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The reason Jude loves the church with all of its problems is because God loves the church. And we love because he first loved us. So often the church isn't beloved to us. So often we're looking for the church to love us, but we're looking in the wrong place. I'm not saying churches shouldn't love, but I'm saying we're looking in the wrong place. And when people fail us, when Christians don't treat us the way that we want, in the way that we hope, even in the way that they should, biblically speaking, we get disillusioned and discouraged and discontent. This isn't what I signed up for. Maybe I should pull away. But that's not the right approach. We don't love people because of how they act or even because of who they are. We love people, not because they love us, but because God loves us. It's natural, Jesus said, to love those who love you. But you know what's spiritual, and I'm talking about God's spirit, is to love those who don't. Understand in the opening illustration, don't think about how hard it would be to be the husband. Think about what it would be like to be the wife. Because in the church metaphor, we are the wife. And if this is hard for you to grasp, if you're like a man and you're like, I'm never the wife, okay, it's a metaphor. What I'm saying is you're the one that needed to be loved. You're the one that needed help. You're the spouse with an incurable disease. And sin is eternal unless Jesus washes it away. So Jude can write to a church with a ton of problems and say without a hint of irony, I love you guys. It's why Paul can write to churches like the Corinthian church and say, I love you guys, and why we're called to do it too, not just say it. It's an entirely different mindset, but for those of you who have ears to hear, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. You're not here to receive You're here to give because you already have everything you need to receive in Christ. You're not here to expect people to be perfect because you know you're not and Jesus loved you anyway. You're not here to find love because you know that you are already the beloved in Christ and you can go up to sinners and love them too. Not with your love, but with his. We'll close here. The world was shocked when that pastor said those words and he backtracked his statements after a lot of backlash. It just seems so callous. Uh, but you know, I was thinking about it. Maybe he was just being honest. You know, maybe what he was saying was a reflection of kind of where we're at as a society, even as a church. And I mean, big C church. A lot of people talk a big game about love, but you got to show it. And I read a story of someone who did. A guy named Robertson McQuilkin, he passed away a few years ago. But in the prime of his career, that exact situation happened to him. His wife was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's 
And what he did was he resigned his, his job as president of Columbia College, okay? He was in the prime of his career. He resigned to become his wife's caregiver full-time. And people were shocked, okay? It was just so much, such a sacrifice. How could you do that? It's just funny how people are shocked either way. Shocked what? If you stay or if you go. Someone asked him, how could you do it? And he simply said, had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health, Till death do us part. Someone asked him, but do you ever think about what you may have given up to care for her? And he said, I don't feel like I've ever given anything up. I don't think that way. And he wasn't bragging. And that's what struck me about what he said. He wasn't focused on what he was losing or how hard it was for him. And it was hard. Don't get me wrong. Or what he might be missing out on. He was only focused on her. He said, she was happier with me around, so I wanted to be around. She needed help. She is my wife. Now, where does that kind of radical other-centeredness come from? If you have ears to hear, you already know what the answer is. So call it to mind. We love not because it's easy, but because we have been deeply, undeservedly loved ourselves. This is what it means to be a Christian on the ground. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. It's why that first pastor's answer was so wrong, even though you might be able to justify it. That's not Christianity. Guys, understand, I'm not saying that you have to endure every sin against you. Okay, I'm not just saying grin and bear all sorts of of abuse and stuff like that. There is a place biblically for church discipline. Sometimes you need to disqualify disqualified leaders. You can go to a different church. But is your authority the word? Are your assumptions correct? And is your approach love? Because these are the things that matter. These are the things that separate the real Christians, as imperfect as we are, from the wolves. These are the things that will help keep you going in the long run so that you'll be able to say at the end of your race, I don't feel like I've given anything up because you know you've already had everything you need. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us to see the riches of what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that for those of us who have ears to hear, that we would love because you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.